Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. So for two years, I've been having conversations with people about their lives, their careers, uh, their views on current events. And then something frightening happened. My buddy, Katie Couric, called me and said that uh, she wanted me to come on her podcast and turn the mic on me. And it turns out she and her Sidekick. Can I call you a sidekick? You can call me a sidekick. The, the Robin Quivers of our show. Yeah. Uh, uh, double team me, which I never do, I want to point out. Thank you. But it, we had a great conversation. So I'm going to run this as an Axe Files, so Axe Files listeners can learn about Axe. Uh, and it will run you on. You sound like Donald Trump all of a sudden. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Referring right. to maybe yourself. We should, maybe we should re-record. No. You, you notice how much the stock market has gone up since I started the Axe Files? It's amazing. <laughs> Mazel. <laughs> Definitely causation. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. So I think we'll start the way Axe does. So we're going to do this in a very biographical way, of course. Okay. Where were you born? Who were your parents? Um, my parents were mom and dad. Uh, no, no, I was born uh, right here in New York City. My uh, my father, uh, his name was Joe, was a uh, immigrant from Eastern Europe. Came over here during the pogroms when he was twelve years old. He, he fell in love with baseball, something that he conveyed to me, and uh, played ball with Hank Greenberg and got a college scholarship and. Met my mother on the beach at Coney Island. They got married. He served in the military, went to graduate school on the GI Bill. And we settled in Stuyvesant Town here in New York City, or they did, before I was born, which was a housing development that was built for returning war veterans. So my mother was kind of a trailblazer. She was a young a journalist in the 1940s. For something called PM. PM, which was an interesting paper. It was kind of a left-wing newspaper that was started by Marshall Field, and it had no advertising because he thought that would maybe corrupt their editorial policy. So she and, was really ahead of her time. Oh, yeah. She, she? Was a, she was a, um, she was in, you know, the women at that time were occasionally they'd do society reporting or something. She was a city desk reporter, you know. So she, she was, was quite a, a trailblazer. She, oh, she was a badass. She was. She was. She was tough and she was uh, determined and, and uh, did it very well. Sounds like she, in many ways, provided a blueprint uh, for your career, at least in journalism. And then at well, least, well, I hate kind to of. I hate to acknowledge that because you'd like to feel like you have free will and you <laughs> have control over your own destiny. Um, but my mother uh, always said that she named my sister and me uh, 
with a mind to what would look good in bylines. Oh, that's very cute. So I, I hate that I fell right into the trap, <laughs> but uh, I love I loved the life I've led. I love my career, and so I, I do uh, – I'm grateful to her. And she, you know, she gave me a certain amount of determination. My father was someone who was less um, – he he less was a psychologist. For you? Yeah, less ambitious for himself. My mother always thought he didn't charge his patients enough. But he also had and, demons, didn't he? Oh, because he did. Because he ended up committing suicide. He did when you were in college, yeah. which must have been the worst. Devastating. The, you know, there are a couple of things in my life that I look at and um, as just the worst, most difficult moments, and that certainly was the first. Did it come out of the blue, David? Out of the blue. Yeah, my father called me a couple of weeks before he died, and we had this odd conversation. He was my really my best friend. I mean, we were very, very close. Uh, growing up, we spent every weekend at the ballpark watching games, and he was a lovely, uh, caring, funny, warm guy. And, um, you know, I could always turn to him. And I, he called me a couple of weeks before he died, and he said, uh, you know, I just want you to know that how proud I am of you. And I know now you and your sister are going to do very well. And I thought, well, that's really nice. You know, thanks, Dad. But it didn't occur to me that he was saying goodbye. And um, it's one of my great regrets in life that I didn't get a chance to say goodbye because I would have told him how much I loved him, you know. You revealed this fact about your father in a piece in the Chicago Tribune in 2006. Yes, and you did it because you wanted to eliminate some of the stigma around suicide. I did. You know, it took me 30 years to publicly acknowledge that my father committed suicide. And um, um, but then I realized that's exactly why people don't get help, because we, you know, we stigmatize mental illness. We stigmatize depression and uh, as a sort of weakness of character and therefore, people don't want to acknowledge it, and they they're alone in this long dark tunnel. And um, I, I I thought hard about it, and I thought this I have to I have to share my story so that other people maybe will go and get help. And I told the story. You know, it was a terrible thing. My I my you asked if it came suddenly. There was a knock on the door. It was a police officer, Chicago police officer. My roommate didn't want to let him in. This was the 70s, you know, and uh, <laughs> so he didn't he know exactly what reasons. business he was there for. And uh, I said, no, let him in. And he asked me if I was David Axford. I said, yes, this is your father, Joseph. And then uh, – and I knew something was – and he said, well, your your dad's dead and we need you to go back to New York and identify him. Um, and he told me uh, the circumstances. And um, it's mind-boggling. So I shared the story. And I basically said, you know, I was ashamed that I had took me 30 years to talk about it, that as if it was somehow uh, besmirching my father to talk about it. You know, the interesting thing about it, when I went to my – at my father's funeral, many of his patients came. They had no idea how he died. Um and one after another came up to me and said, you know, uh, your dad, he saved my life. And I thought, how sad, you know, how sad that he he could save their lives, but he couldn't, he couldn't reach out to, for help to save his own. So I got a great reaction to that column in that 
I mean, moving more than anything I've ever written. And I've written a lot uh, from people who were suffering, who had either lost a loved one or who were suffering with depression, saying thank you for sharing this. And I'll tell you now, every time somebody in public life uh, steps forward, I'm so grateful to them. Uh, I actually did Carl Rove's mother committed suicide as oh, well. I have no idea. Carl and I did an event together earlier this year. Uh, uh, I guess yeah, earlier this year in Washington with a group of uh, of, of families who were going to lobby on Capitol Hill around the issue of mental health, and um, and he was com- really compelling and really powerful. And I, I you know. I think it, and it was important that we were together, because there is no partisan divide when it comes to, to these things. You know, mental illness, suicide doesn't choose people by party, uh, by race or class. Uh, we're all subject to it, and um, and I'm we glad, need to treat it that way. I'm glad you brought attention to it, David. And I think you know not only the importance of getting help for depression, which is often, uh, you know, a biological uh, situation. Yes, it's an illness. Yeah, it's an illness just like cancer or heart disease. But also I I would imagine there's tremendous shame and guilt being a survivor when someone you love takes his or her own life. And I think it must have taken you a long time to come to terms with that for yourself. Yes, well, you know— um, I do feel that way, uh, though, you know, one thing that I took away from it was that my father felt like it wasn't a father's place to put place on his child, uh, the, his burdens. And um, so I think there was an element of that. But yeah, God, I would have loved to have been helpful uh, to him, it's. By the you know, way, I don't think those feelings should, are legitimate, but I imagine as a survivor. Yeah, no, I think I'm sure people feel that way. I think it's most acute uh, for parents uh, when they lose their children, and uh, sadly, that is becoming more and not less prevalent in this day of social media. We've seen an uptick in suicide by uh, adolescents and uh, especially adolescent girls. Yes, you know, it's something like triple girls between the ages of ten and fifteen. The suicide rate has tripled, which I found so uh, shocking and devastating. Yeah, I to think hear. the gro- growth in suicide is among adolescent girls and men in their fifties. Actually, white men, yeah. fifty and over, have yeah. the highest suicide rate in the country. I'm doing a series for National Geographic tackling some of the big social issues. Yeah, and one of them is going to be sort of the alienated white working class voter, yeah. which will be interesting. And, yeah. and of course, well, something that— Well, it goes to opioids and— Suicide. And, yeah, no, and, it's, a, it's a terrible problem, you know. And uh, so thank you for doing that. And, uh, and, and all you've done, you know, one thing, you're a role model to a lot of us because the work that you've done to bring uh, awareness uh, to uh, colon cancer has saved— Many lives. So I just think open discussion is so important. Bruce Springsteen just wrote a autobiography. That's a wonderful book. He's a great and he's passionate a po- he's writer. He's a poet, right? <laughs> he is, and that comes through in the book. But a lot of it is devoted to his lifelong battle with depression. It 
is one more thing that brings this issue into the open, and he deserves great credit for it. So as you often say on the Axe Files, I don't want to lose the thread of your life story. Yes. So we're going we're gonna to go back to that. You remember as a five-year-old JFK yes. campaigning yes. in Stuyvesant Town. Yeah. Uh, back when New York was a battleground state. Exactly. Uh, Which you, tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> I was thanks thanks say. for aging me. <laughs> you pretty much aged I think, yourself. Yeah, I, I think the JFK yeah. was the first, <laughs> first hint. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you handed out materials for his brother Bobby yes. in 1968 when yeah. you were 13. Not, and, and also in, in 64 when I was nine and he ran for the Senate here. So I always say I, I, that was the first campaign I worked on, not as the strategist, but as a, a field man. <laughs> what made you such a, a political junkie at, at such a young age? You know, um, that visit actually was really meaningful to me. Um, a woman named Jessie Berry took me out there. She was she worked she took care of me when my mother was at work, and she heard JFK was coming and thought I should see it, and took me and put me on this mailbox. Uh, I mean, it was, I didn't understand it all, but it just seemed so important. He jumps up on this platform. We're on 20th Street in Manhattan. It's this uh, big boulevard, and it's usually filled with cars. Now it's filled with people, and his voice is booming off the buildings, and everybody's watching him, and there are American flags all around. And I thought, wow. You were just five? I was five. Wow. I was five. And um, I was hooked from. Almost my the moment of awareness. But but you know it's interesting because you didn't go straight into politics. You went into journalism, um, which I guess was a way to combine those two passions. Well, right? it was also I'll tell you I went out to the University of Chicago and I went for three reasons. Um, one was that I knew it was a great university. Number two, it was more than six hundred miles from New York, so I knew my. Uh, Mother wouldn't surprise me with a visit because she'd have to buy a plane ticket. And the third reason was that uh, Chicago is a great political town. It was then. It is now. But then it was the home of Richard J. Daley, the last of the big city machines. They just had this calamitous Democratic convention in 68. And the University of Chicago sat on the south side in a place where there was this sort of burgeoning black independent political movement. I thought, what a cool place to be. And then I got to the university where I work now. I run an institute of politics there now. But then there was nothing like that. And I couldn't find anybody who wanted to talk about anything that happened after the year 1800, you know. (laughs) And so I... uh, I I really started writing for newspapers to sate my interest in in politics. And so, yes, it was a way of combining those two things. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have more with David Axelrod. There's so many things we want to talk to you about, current events, policy positions. Brian is going to completely geek out as we talk about all <laughs> kinds of things me. that are going on. And, um, of course, I want to talk to you more about this wonderful organization, Cure, which you and your wife started. Happy and to, you ask know. you about Lauren in particular, Thank your daughter. You. So we'll be back with David in just a moment. So we're back with David Axelrod. Um, you became a political reporter, very successful at that at a very young age. You became the city hall bureau chief and the political columnist at the Tribune. What attracted you to become a journalist? Oh, man, and, I, and, I loved it. I, <laughs> I was going to say, and, what, and then what motivated you to leave journalism yeah. eight years later? Let me say, I always say I went to college at the University of Chicago and I was educated at the Chicago Tribune. I went to work at the Tribune two days after I left college. I got an internship. 
In fact, you know, I was doing journalism in college. I improbably got a job as a political columnist at this little local newspaper there when I was 18. And, you know, I was working toward journalism as a career. And I was so into it that um, I kind of wasn't the greatest student. Like I had to finish like about a quarter of my courses in the last 10 weeks that I was there and then almost didn't graduate because I hadn't passed my freshman swimming test, which – so. <laughs> but I told – I begged – I said, look, I got a job at the Chicago Tribune. I can't go to summer school. I can't. So um, – Did you pass the swimming test? I did with, with an hour to spare uh-huh. <laughs> only because the guy who was giving it to me had one of these bamboo poles and every time I tried to climb out of the pool, he'd push me back in until I did my five laps. <laughs> But So I owe my career to him, I guess. But I loved everything about being in a newsroom, loved it. I got there at the end of the sort of golden age of Chicago journalism, the front page era, and a lot of the editors there, all of them really were raised in that environment. So, you know, there was a guy named Donna Grella who was on the city desk, ran the city desk. And I just, the first day I got there, um, there was a tornado in Lamont, Illinois, and it was very devastating. And I came in my new suit and everything. They said, and he, Agrella looks at me and says, well, that's a nice, nice suit, but it's going to get dirty. We're sending you out to this uh, tornado. And the next day I come in and uh, Frank Fitzsimmons, who was the head of the Teamsters Union, had they, they had a convention. He had just gotten himself voted a 700% pay raise. So he says, kid, go out and find some Teamsters and see how they feel about this. Wow. So it's like a Lucky suicide mission. That yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I went out. He said, go out to this loading dock. And I literally, I, I said, be, as between risking my life and going back without the story, I decided it was better to risk my life and, fi- and got a few guys who were crazy enough to actually go on the record and say how pissed they were at Frank Fitzsimmons. But I went on nights for a few years and I learned so much about life. You know, I covered murder and mayhem and all kinds of stuff that I never would have been exposed to and a a lot of tragedy, a lot of heroism. Um, But then you decided eight years later to cross over from objectively covering the news to being a a partisan I I made the transition as a political reporter and I loved that as well. And I, you know, but but the management of the Tribune changed uh, around, uh, I guess, five years into my tenure there. And And it was really a forerunner of what we've seen in journalism. Generally, it was they were worried about the bottom line. Well, they, uh, you know, they brought in a new team of editors. Like my old, the first team of editors who trained me delighted in like throwing the governor out of the newsroom when he came in to complain or, you know, stuff like that. I mean, their whole thing was the news is everything, the truth. We're going to pursue the truth. No one's going to tell us what to do. And then it became sort of like, how do we tease more uh, money out of the deal? News holes shrunk. Um, the attitude in the newsroom changed. And I sort of didn't like the direction things were going. So in 1984, when Paul Simon, not the singer, but the congressman was running for the U.S. Senate, he asked me to join me. The bow tie. <laughs> but, Wonderful guy. But before yeah. we talk about politics, yes. though, David, and, and sort of the what? way thematically. There's something other than politics? <laughs> well, thematically, I love how you do your show with biography yes. and then current events. And I, so I have to jump in to ask you about journalism in general. Yes. You know, because you and I are about the same age and journalism you wear has it better, changed. But yes. I don't think so. But it's changed so dramatically through the years. And it's so um, – 
so different than it was. Uh, in many ways, I think it's a good thing because the democratization of journalism has happened. More voices are allowed to be expressed. On the other hand, I, I, I am sad for sometimes for what it's become. What is your take on journalism today? Because there's great journalism going yeah, there, on, but it's also – there's so much of it. It's hard to well, kind of make sense of it. Well, it's unfiltered and it – yeah, I think it's difficult for the consumer. Uh, my big concerns are two. Um, one is the nature of the social media environment is that um, there is no time for reflection. There is no time – uh, for the kind of assiduous fact-checking. I mean, not, I shouldn't say there's never time for that. And some news organizations still have the resources to really pursue things in the way they should be pursued. But even at the best uh, news organizations, you see layers of editors being fired right. and laid off. And so, you know, I profited as a young reporter from the guidance and direction I got from really seasoned journalists. I think that layer has been removed because of economies and so on from a lot of places. So that's a concern. But the the immediacy thing is really, you know, I see great reporters now who were around when I started and reporters who, um, who I dealt with over the years, who I really, really respect. But, you know, they have to file six times a day, you know, Donald Trump, uh, tweets and that, and you've got to go and respond to, and so there's no time for reflection. The, the editorial layer has been um, diminished. I think that there, the competitive pressures because of this sort of environment are such that there is a news organizations feel the need to rush into space, even if they're not exactly sure. Plus, there's so much opinion. You know, I was, I was. Uh, basically raised or yeah. trained yes. to, to try to be objective. And, and I know that it, you, you can't know, it's necessarily such, it's so do. so funny you should say that. When I went to work, the first night when I left journalism and went to work for Paul Simon, I went to an event for him. And uh, every and he spoke and people were applauding. And I was standing there and I realized, oh, yeah, I can applaud <laughs> for this. Because I was so... As a journalist, I, I really felt an obligation to to try and be fair, to try and be uh, – to not inject my – I mean, I had a column and there I did inject my opinion. But, I, you know, the best thing that – one of the nicest compliments that was ever paid to me as a reporter was when I uh, quit the Tribune and some old hack alderman in Chicago uh, came up to me and said – you know, you screwed us, but you screwed them. So I figure you're okay. That's what, you know, I had dinner with Walter Cronkite before I took the job at CBS. And it was very... That alone was worth taking the it, job. It was a very funny night because we were at the Four Seasons restaurant in that, um, is that what they call the fountain room the or whatever? Room. The pool room, which was incredibly loud. And and at the time, Walter Cronkite was... As pool rooms tend to be. He was incredibly deaf. And uh -huh. so it was very hard to have a conversation with him. But he was so lovely and so wonderfully supportive. And he said, Katie, as long as everybody hates you, you know you're doing your job, yeah. which I thought was good advice. But now it seems that people are definitely, they have to pick a side. They have become so entrenched in this polarization themselves. Yeah. But, it, you know, and, and is it because the president has sort of strained the boundaries of objectivity? I think he certainly, he, 
it's hard to say whether how much he is the cause and how much he is the manifestation of what we see. But he certainly, his uh, sort of lack of boundaries uh, has, you know, tempted others in the political environment and in journalism to, uh, you know, and there's this big argument now. I mean, my great concern is that we not sort of descend in our politics or in the coverage of politics into kind of a law of the jungle, you know, well, this is how he operates, so this is how we should operate, and this is how they operate, so this is how we're going to operate. And, you know, so uh, all kind of rules and norms and standards are uh, diminished. And I, I, it is a concern. Now, I will say this. You know, people say, well, what makes you optimistic? Now, it's a, that's a hard question, but I do think that in general, our democratic institutions have responded to the challenges of Donald Trump uh, in a way that is inspiring the courts, the Congress, you know, even the Republican Congress and the media, uh, not to mention average people who have made their voices heard. But I do think it is the job of the media to shine a light in dark places and I, and the media's uh, national media is doing that. I guess if I were running a news organization, one thing I might do is say to my reporters who are covering the president, you cannot tweet. I don't want to see your opinions on Twitter and if you want to voice an opinion, then write a news analysis, write an op-ed piece. But everybody's uh, tweeting now though and yeah. I mean it's you know what? What one thing that, 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 that bothers me, though, David, <laughs> yes. is that you sometimes feel that it it becomes journalists create their own echo chambers. So it's reporters talking to reporters, reporters trying to one up reporters, reporters responding to reporters. And I just wonder how much of the general public is served by that kind of discourse. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, and you know, Twitter feeds on itself. So you, I mean, yeah. I all of that is concerning. And the other thing that's concerning to me is um, I think that rather than kind of snarking out about Donald Trump, uh, some consideration, like thoughtful consideration has to be given to the, you know, 60 million Americans or whoever who voted for him. And, you know, people resent this sometimes when I say this to people uh, on the left. But, um, you know, I have a place in rural Michigan. All my neighbors had Trump signs on their lawn. I should have paid more attention to that. Um, but these are not like toothless, ignorant racists, okay? They are hardworking people. They're good neighbors. I'm not saying that race and misogyny are not, are not real, but it is too facile to say that was what this whole election was right. about. And there are big things going on in our society, in our economy, that big changes that are creating the conditions for the rise of a Donald Trump. I think that's a much more important thing to focus on. You, I, know? you know, sometimes I feel like it, it's more important for journalists to separate his personality, which is at times uh, vexing and – um, you think repugnant, yes. but separating his personality from some of the policies or some of the shifts in in the role of government yeah. in in our lives. And but it, the, yeah, I agree with you. Though the, the, the difficulty with Trump is um, it's not clear 
what he's actually what he actually believes or what he's wedded to. You know, he lives life as if all of life is a reality show and everything around you is a facade. And if the one facade doesn't work, then you change the set or you change the cast or you change the words. But the words don't necessarily mean that much to mm-hmm. him. And so, you the know— The one true north is winning. Right. And it doesn't matter what you've won. I mean, nobody in Congress believed that he understood or really cared what was in a health care bill. He just wanted to sign something right. called a health care exactly. bill. Exactly, yes. And and that's why it's not shocking that he might cut a deal with Pelosi and, and, uh, and, and Schumer. Um, but the thing is that he is a master— marketer. He he does have sort of a preternatural sense for people's vulnerabilities. And he saw a lane here to exploit. The question is uh, beyond, what does he do with that lane? And the question is what do what is the what do the rest of us do with it? Because there are forces out there that need to be addressed. What do we do about an economy that is being changed at warp speed by uh, technology and global globalization. I've been singing that song for for over a year where I've said, why isn't anybody talking about that during the campaign? The fact that only 9% of jobs were lost from 2000 to 2010 from trade right. and the rest Robots from automation. And, because it's, 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 it's much more politically uh, profitable to attack Mexico and China than it is to attack robots and computers. And or to it, figure out what how to you do make about an adjustment. It. What to do about it. The truth is you can't put the genie back in the bottle in either case. So the question is, what is our strategy for dealing with it? Or are we satisfied with a country in which uh, a handful of people do very, very well and the bulk of people are struggling to to keep what they have? I think that's not just a prescription for um, you know, revolution. Uh, no, no. I mean, I, that's the, it, 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 if, if people cease to believe that the system is fair and they have a shot, then they, they're going to lose their faith in the system. And that's not just our economy. It's, it's democracy. And before we return to your biography, I have a question about that. Are you worried that your party, that the Democrats are going to do the same kind of us versus them politics that were so profitable for Trump, but just with a different us and a different them. Instead of Mexicans and immigrants, it'll be bankers and the top 1%. Yeah. Well, just as Trump uh, identified a real problem, I think that there are people on the left who have identified in some ways the same problem. But I here's what I believe. I don't think at, after four years of Donald Trump, or however many years there is, I'm presuming four years of Donald Trump. Uh, I don't think that the majority of Americans are going to be looking for a democratic version of him, a version of politics that is as angry and divisive as his. I mean, you know, I think that there are real, I fundamentally believe that we need as a country through our government, it doesn't have to be government run programs, but it has to be government as a galvanizer, certainly, uh, as a convener. We need answers to some of these problems. And so I don't... If Somebody I, once said that people are looking for the remedy and not the replica. Right. Well, well, the remedy, that's exactly... Yeah, that's my theory. And I believe people will be looking for the remedy. But... Um, and the remedy is not to be as angry and as divisive as Trump. The, we somehow... We have to 
uh, find those things that do unite us as Americans, uh, the values and the common concerns that we have. And uh, we need a leader who's going to do that after Trump. And so do you think that Sanders and Warren are too angry and divisive? You know, um, this is where I'm going to retreat into all the evasion techniques that <laughs> I've taught others for years and years and years. Look, I know them both. I like them both. And I think they've raised important issues. Um, but I, I'll just say that I, I think that we need— A uniter, not a divider. Yes, I think we need that. And um, and we'll see what it, we're, we'll see if they run. We'll see how they run, and we'll see how uh, the rest of uh, the field, which is numerous, emerges. We're going to take a short break from our crossover podcast with the Katie Couric Show, and we'll be right back. Let's talk about your memoir because I know it uh, was very well received. Um, very candid, beautifully written, not surprisingly, called Believer. And you, you write about your family life, David, mm-hmm. that uh, when you met your beautiful wife, Susan, who I think is so cool, uh, in college. And just for the sake of our listeners, she really is beautiful. She is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree. Yeah, both inside and out. Yeah. And and I love her hair. She, yes. she let her hair go gray, which I don't have the she's guts striking. to do. But she, she's striking. And she, she pulls yeah. it off beautifully. But anyway, enough about Susan. Let's yes. talk about you. So you talked about the price you paid uh, in terms of your career and not – Sort of being well, focused I talk about on the your price family. My family paid. Well, that's what I mean. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I you mean, too, you know, I guess, by missing well, out. Yes, it is. Yes. But it, that was my choice, not theirs. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, a source of profound um, sadness and embarrassment and shame to me that you know about my daughter. My daughter was born. And she was perfectly normal. And when she was seven months old, we found her. Susan found her blue and limp in the crib. I was still a reporter then, and that began a nightmare for her and our family. She, she had was epilepsy, with epilepsy and an intractable epilepsy, so she had thousands of seizures over the next nineteen years. And we had another child nineteen months later, my son Michael, and then a, a third child four years after that, Ethan. And so these these kids were small when I was when I was a reporter and then when I started my business and started in politics. And I was very driven professionally. And um, I wasn't there for Susan. I wasn't there for the kids in the way that I should have been. I I really regret that. She doesn't seem to hold it against you. Well, she's a forgiving person, but I I don't think she's forgotten. And I haven't forgotten, you know, those. And one of the things that I hope to do in the remaining years that I have is to make it up to her. And we've got two beautiful grandchildren now. And I, we just were with them uh, in the last weekend as we sit here today. Um, I, want, I want to spend more time um, because um, the older you get, the more you realize that every day is a gift and it shouldn't be squandered. And Lauren is doing well. I got to know Lauren. Uh, I did a piece on a wonderful on piece, David yeah. and Susan and Lauren about epilepsy and all the great work that they're doing with this organization they started called Cure. Yeah. And uh, Lauren was so great and I was so 
happy that I got a chance to get to know her a little bit. She's an amazing person. And she's still in Chicago. Yes. Um, She lives at a place called Misericordia. Which is an amazing place, by the way. And it's an interesting thing. I think we should say a word about this. You know, there are a lot of advocates for people with special needs across the country who I honor and I appreciate. Um, But there's a big debate. Misericordia is a community – of 600 uh, uh, men and women with uh, disabilities, intellectual disabilities, some physical disabilities. Um, some live in group homes in the community. Some live in very intense therapeutic environments. My daughter lives in a an apartment with uh, two other women. It's more like a college dormitory. But it's it's an incredible place. And She's thrived there. She loves it there. She's become much more independent. She works off of the campus and so on. But there's a theory among these activists that the only place that people with disabilities should live is in group homes in the community, that they should be fully integrated into the community. And that is true for some, but not for all. I wouldn't say to you guys as people who don't have uh, disabilities that I'm going to tell you exactly how you're going to live. And uh, and yet they feel uh, – these folks feel like they should tell my child and other people's children uh, how to live or how they should want to live, notwithstanding what they feel. That's a big debate. And frankly, I, I didn't exercise enough influence when I was in the Obama administration on this because I think that my own administration made decisions that were probably not uh, consistent with what – uh, I'm saying now. What decisions are you talking about? I mean, decisions that make it harder for communities to flourish. Now, let me say that this was all born out of one a good reason, because there used to be state institutions and private institutions that warehoused people with disabilities, yeah, abused them. But the answer is not to say one size fits all. Right. The answer A is to fully resource these places so that there are quality places for people with disabilities to live uh, when they're adults, but it is also to make sure that they are held to high standards. And that is true, by the way, of group homes, because there's been, I know in New York State, for example, uh, some scandalous conditions in group homes. One of our concerns was in a group home would learn, would there be adequate oversight? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the big issue, the real issue is that people with disabilities deserve our support and because and of shrinking bu- and options, shrinking state budgets, you know, this uh, the the threat now that Medicaid may be cut back is very potentially devastating to people with disabilities. So we should make sure there's adequate resources for the most vulnerable in our society. But we also should make sure that they have the sa- an array of choices and they can choose the one that fits their uh, their needs the best. So as Katie mentioned um – one thing you and your wife did was start Cure to raise money yes. for research. Um, and one she of the started it. Honest to God, I mean, uh, I, I was sort of a, a wingman or something. I don't know. But what happened was my daughter, we tried everything, you know, tw- all the available medications. She had a vagal nerve stimulator implanted in her chest to try and stimulate her nerves to stop seizures, nerves into the brain. She And then ultimately they – Everything failing, they we tried brain surgery and they inserted – they bore seven holes in her head and inserted a metal plate in her head and on, laid it on her brain and removed all her medication uh, and 
and, and induced seizures for 10 days. She was 15 or 16 years old. And she, was, so she, she wanted this because she was so terrified by seizures and so miserable. Uh, and they did terrible damage. I mean, she today functions at the level of sort of an early adolescent. But she understood that she wanted them to stop. That's all she wanted. She used to squeeze Susan's hand in between seizures saying, Mom, make them stop. And uh, so I teared up when I read that passage that was, in your book. Uh, I couldn't it was, even imagine. That was one of the other awful moments. Uh, but uh, but uh, so Susan, then the doctor came in after these 10 days and said, we can't help her too deep in her brain, can't find the focal point because they were going to cut a piece of her brain out. That's how desperate we were. And so Susan said, I can't tolerate this anymore. This is not right. And she knew that we couldn't probably help Lauren, but she just didn't – she didn't want the, anybody else to go through this. So she and two other moms started this organization, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, at our kitchen table. And it today is the uh, largest private funder of epilepsy research in the world. We've raised over $40 million. It's not nearly enough. But she and they have changed their, like, the sort of mothers against drunk drivers. Of, and they've changed the whole – thought process in the research community about how to approach epilepsy instead of just ameliorating seizures with, you know, palliatives uh, to really go to the core of it and try and, and find cures. And and is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Are you seeing some you know, promising there is, there, there, is, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is long because the brain is so complex. But I feel like brain science is there's this, this yes. new era for brain yes. science and look, and, because and, of technology. And also genetics. So, uh, you know, some of uh, ep- a lot of epilepsy um, results from brain trauma. It is, for example, a major problem for wounded warriors returning from Iraq and Afghanistan where head injuries are a signature injury. Um, and we're working with the Defense Department to try and find ways to interdict and mm-hmm. help people not develop epilepsy after these uh, injuries. But, so, uh, uh, but uh, some of it is genetic. And uh, so we're, you know, we created a genetic bank and are doing research to try and get to some core, and we're making some progress there. Um, you know, we've funded 150 research projects around the world, nine different countries, um, and with it's- each each one, you know, we're we're finding. We're finding things out, and and in the more successful ones, they now because uh, there's so little research money that. Uh, you need a proven concept to get funded by the NIH, for example. Right. We are providing the seed money so that out-of-the-box kind of thinking on epilepsy can get that funding. So, we do that with stand-up to cancer. Yeah. We, we earmark a particular amount, you know, a specific amount of money for kind of these pie-in-the-sky ideas. And by the way, sometimes pie-in-the-sky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, like nine out of ten promising research proposals are not funded right. at all. Even So even out of those that aren't right. out of the box don't receive funding. One of the things I learned when I did the piece on Cure is that all this research in epilepsy, and, and really the same can be true for cancer, there's this intersectionality now with scientific research where yes. you know uh, breakthroughs with epilepsy research may be incredibly helpful for things like Parkinson's or other exactly, neurological disorders. And similarly, even I, I think I remember them saying that there, there's some clues to cancer yeah. that can be found in this research. So I think one of the promising things that I've witnessed 
witnessed in the last decade or so is much much of this science is helping other uh, Listen, other organizations. I, I, I believe in science, and I believe that there is no problem that that won't ultimately yield to intensive uh, research and experimentation. Um, and the question is just whether we devote the the, the resources. resources to it. And our mission is, you know, we can't at Cure provide the uh, the resources to to solve this problem, but we can plant seeds. And hopefully they will grow. And you can work with grow. other organizations too, yeah, and absolutely. compound the impact absolutely. of the work you're doing. But so I mean, I just, I just, just to put a button on this, my wife is a hero. She is an absolute hero, and I, you know, I'm in awe of her because she never. And the reason I want to say it is, she never ever calls attention to herself. This was never about that. But you know, she's like others. You know, who there are a lot of un known heroes out there, people who who took on these kinds of problems and decided they were going to make it their life's work to do something about it and help other people. And she believes that this is going to be Lauren's legacy, that if we can find answers to epilepsy. And, you know, I'm just so proud of her. And one of the early champions of cure and this cause was Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. And she attended, I believe, one the of the first your... fundraiser, the first major fundraiser for cure. And I'll tell you, she she came to Chicago. She was first lady. She went to an epilepsy clinic. She spent the day there. She came that night. She had a written text, but she the most arresting part of her remarks was her describing looking at the EEG of a baby who is having a seizure and watching these these lines grow thicker and thicker and talking about what that child must have felt and how a parent must have felt watching that child. And she was so moving. And she then worked with us after that to, to hold the first ever national conference on curing epilepsy, the White House, the NIH, and Cure together. And that was so this was really meaningful. The, this was around the same time you were helping her with her New York Senate race. It was before she ran for the Senate that she she and then the conference happened uh, while or while she was running, I think. But I really, you know, it was a ge- genuine act on her part that I. Um, and she was very kind to Lauren in a way that Lauren was very perseverative at the time. Her behavior was very difficult, and Hillary was great with her. And, you know, this is I, – I know I've been critical of her – I was critical of her campaign at times, and that has caused people to suggest that I was uh, – you know, and obviously I ran a campaign for Barack Obama in 2008. Well, I was she was on the other side. That how, I forgot about that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> how, but how I bet she hasn't. Um, how difficult was it? It to, was. Yeah. It was. You know, I never anticipated being in the 2008 campaign. I had worked for John Edwards in 2004. It was a terrible experience. And I decided that I was never going to work for a presidential candidate again unless I had a bond of trust with that person, a closeness and a belief, mutual belief, that would sustain us through a really difficult process. And I think you had five former clients I in did, that race. I did. I did. Um, and, you know, so I, had a, I told uh, Patty Solis Doyle, who was her manager in the summer of 2006, I'm not going to be involved in this presidential race unless Barack Obama runs, and I don't think he's going to run. And I really didn't at the time that I told her that. Um, but um, I honestly, 
I, I did have that relationship with him, and I honestly believed that he was what the country needed at the time. And so, you know, I went and worked for him. It wasn't a uh, anti-Hillary impulse on my part. I think one of the tragedies of Hillary Clinton is that that side that I saw of her, that's a real thing. She the, she is very much someone who cares about, you know, helping people and who uh, digs into problems and really tries to solve them. And, and then there's this other side of her that is um, deeply uh, cautious and, uh, you know, I think it's callous. Callous is in part from 30 years of being in the public eye, but just, you know, she, she's got this um, Distrustful, sort of, I think, is yeah, a good word yeah, maybe for, I, I for, think that, for that, that side of her. Because right. I agree there's an incredibly warm, caring, nurturing, I mean, charming, funny, lovely And I think side it's very genuine. And I think one of the challenges in running for president, I have always said authenticity is the leading indicator for presidential candidates. Um, the challenge for Al Gore was could he show he has a, a a good a great side to him? Could he show he he never could get there? Kerry was very cautious. John Kerry's a very good person. Couldn't get there. Um, the the most authentic candidates tend to win. You know George W. Bush, whether you like his politics or not, um, he's a very authentic person. Uh, he there's a warmth to him and a there, there's a sort of charm to him that. And, you know, McCain uh, – uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kerry and Gore, you know, didn't have that. Uh, but do we and, and the media but, in particular reward the wrong stuff? Do we reward these sort of um, general impressions fellow of, well, well met types. of people's personalities? No, no, listen. Than- I think that um, uh, the God's honest truth is that when I heard Hillary speak in 2016, um, she was – very cautious. She was very scripted. There felt like it felt like there was a seven second delay every time she spoke as she ran things through a political filter. I did not see that person that I've described. I did not see that person who to whom so many people are devoted. I think they became. I mean, you know, both of you know this better than I do. But I think she became. They became paranoid in a way. I think they became. So cautious that it bordered on paranoia about the emails, how she handled well, it. Well, I think the emails, never... the emails themselves, were the email problem was a manifestation of that paranoia because when you decide I'm going off the system and we're going to have our own server and, and I'm only going to operate on private email – that is a manifestation of something. But then I think it cascaded into everything she did because I think she was so worried about being natural, being herself, uh, that the, and and wouldn't wouldn't make herself available to the press very often, or only yeah. did it in very limited ways. That she never got in a situation where she could relax. And kind of show this other side of her well, because the she was so nervous the, about it right. getting blown out yeah. of proportion. She also, I mean, she she felt like she was in a good position to win. Then you know, and then there was a didn't need to take chances. A little chances. bit like the, the basketball term is a four corner offense. You know, just don't take any risks, mm-hmm. hold the ball. But um, what did you think of her book? You know, I haven't. I've only read the excerpts. I have the book. I haven't read it yet. My my sense is much like. Uh, everything else we're discussing here, the parts in which she talked about her own feelings were probably very revealing in ways that her previous books haven't been and she hasn't been. 
Um, I, you know, I, I think it was probably very cathartic for her to write that book. Was it helpful for the party? I don't know, and I don't think she necessarily cares about that. I, 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 but I'm yeah. asking you. Oh yeah, you are. Um, the I, I mean, I don't think going backwards here is particularly useful, except in so far as, and this her book didn't cover, is to ask the question: Did her message and the message of the party? Was it effective? I mean, I think what happened in 2016 is Democrats got uh, too uh, relaxed about the electoral lock. You know, Hillary Clinton now says she wants to do away with the electoral college. But just weeks before the election, you heard Democrats saying, well, you know, yeah, it's rough, but we've got the electoral lock, right? We can't – we start with – The blue wall. Right, the blue wall. Um, Interestingly, weeks before the election, Donald Trump was saying we ought to disband the electoral college. Now he's college educated. I was going to say, now he loves it. You've been waiting to deploy that line. For for months. Thank you. Uh, But, you know, you got into some hot water with Hillary supporters by saying, you know, Jim Comey didn't tell her not to campaign in Wisconsin. Right. Jim Comey didn't tell her not to go to Michigan until the last week. Right. Or to spend more money in Arizona than Michigan. Um, and also, Jim Comey didn't tell her to have her own email server. And Vladimir Putin didn't tell her to make speeches to Goldman Sachs weeks before she was going to become Having a said candidate. That, you can't deny that Comey and Russia I, had listen, a huge I think impact. Listen, I think Comey, I think she is right when she says that Comey's intervention in October of last year may have been the final blow uh, to her. But, um, you know, it's like um, you have a disease uh, and you may, uh, you know, if it could be cancer or something else and your death certificate could say uh, you died of pneumonia, but the fact is your system was so weakened that you were vulnerable. I think that she should not have been in the position that she was so vulnerable. Obviously, if she hadn't done the email thing, there would have been no Comey. Also, if President Clinton hadn't, hadn't gone on the plane with Loretta Lynch, Comey wouldn't have been empowered to speak on the investigation. So it was almost sort of a chain reaction. It was of a cast, a, a bunch of events. You know, the most and the most uh, damaging thing about WikiLeaks. I thought was when they leaked her speeches, you know, first of all, she articulated a, a, a pro-trade position that was in conflict with what she was saying. But she said one thing that I thought was enormously revealing, which was, you know, you have to have a public position and a private position. And that's exactly what people thought, that, you know, she has a different set of uh, priorities and positions privately than publicly. And you cannot... It, if you operate that way, well, unless, unless you're like, unless you're, you know, uh, Bill Clinton was the greatest political talent of our time. And, you know, he had the ability to navigate all of this in a way nobody else ever has. Well, but generally, you know, you're going to get caught if you're trying to sort of lawyer your way through every question. Plus this 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 nexus of public and private led people to believe that she was a phony or reinforced yes. the notion she was a, a phony, which is the complete antithesis of authenticity. Yes. So I think and, it just you know, fed and, into and, and, those and preconceived Donald, Donald notions. Tr- Donald Trump, as uh, crazy and objectionable as some of the things he said and did, like not once in the campaign did I hear someone say, gee, I wish Trump would just speak his mind. I mean, he always spoke his mind. Sometimes people said, gee, I wish he wouldn't speak his mind. Who do you blame 
for Hillary's campaign. I mean, here you have the seasoned veteran and John Podesta. You have someone who Bill Clinton is is there. Apparently, his advice wasn't heeded. You have all so, the Obama campaign veterans. Yeah, right. We did, we did. So, yeah. so Look, um, does the fish rot from the head? Whose fault uh, is it? Yeah. I mean, every campaign takes on the character of the person on top. And if the person on top is, um, a, a, as you say, a sort of paranoid and um, overly cautious and all of that stuff, then the campaign takes on that nature. Now, having said that, there were tactical mistakes that were made, and there's no question about it. You alluded to it. Uh, you know, the lack of emphasis on these Midwestern industrial states, the assumption that they were in the Democratic column was a huge mistake fishing in Arizona. I mean, you know, the coal comment, which she explains in her book. Yeah, I'm I'm more sympathetic to that. She wasn't wrong about that. Uh, you know, she it was probably imprudent to say it the way. Right. I uh, think it was the, the way the, she said the it. way she said it. Um, you know, I think one question that could be debated is, was it smart to change her position on trade, on the TPP, you know, which because she know never anyone... quite, she never got that the, the biggest vulnerability she had was this lack of authenticity, lack of trust. So, for example, on that November 11th day, uh, on that September 11th day when she was ill at that service, memorial service, and she, uh, went, tried to get to her daughter's house, collapsed in the street, footage of that, comes out, says, I'm fine. And then six hours later, we learned she had pneumonia. And you know what? If they had said, you know what? She's got walking pneumonia. She was told to stay home today. Uh, but she wanted to be at this, and it just was too much. So uh, you I know, agree. Like I mean, I mean, the cover up is always worse than well, the Well, I said at the time that it was, she, doesn't, she didn't get that it was about stealth, not health. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was true of a lot of and these things. And it just fed into this sort of you can't trust her, you yeah. know, narrative that Donald Trump kept emphasizing with crooked Hillary. I think those mantras of his are extraordinarily effective. Well, we'll and, see and, what the know, rocket man says. <laughs> <laughs> but having made this critique of Hillary Clinton and, and her political acumen, I, I should ask, having been President Obama's chief strategist, the knock on him is, yeah, he got himself elected and reelected, but the party suffered this mm-hmm. shellacking in 2010. Yes. He left it in the worst shape since the 1920s. How responsible do you think President Obama is or was as the leader of the party for the position that the party's in today? Well, um, I, 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 not just President Obama. I mean, I was a political person who worked for the president, and um, uh, I feel that we didn't put enough emphasis on party building at the sort of state and local level, and the DNC should have been much more deeply involved uh, in that. Having said that, uh, let me just remind you, we came to office in the midst of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. I walked out of a briefing on the economy in 2008. I can tell you the exact date, December 16th, because it was such a scary briefing. I'll never forget it. And I told the president-elect, we're going to get our asses kicked in the midterm elections. It was as predictable as day follows night because uh, the country was about – was going through hell and it wasn't going to recede for a long time. And therefore, the party in power was going to take a beating. Plus, we were holding a lot of seats that we shouldn't have held with, that we took from Republicans in the landslides of 2006 and 2008, uh, 2008 in particular. So – once you lost the 2010 election and redistricting happened, 
it became very, very difficult. Uh, it, that made it harder to hold legislatures. It made it harder to win congressional seats. So there were things that I think could not have been avoided. And then there were things that we should have done. Yeah, let's and, focus on those. Sorry. But I mean, you know, because it sounds okay. a little like the dog ate my home, homework. No, skosh. because I started off by saying what I think we could do, which is I, I think I think the Democratic National Committee should be very much focused on state legislative races, down-ballot races, helping state parties recruit candidates, helping fund those candidates. The Koch brothers made a 10-year investment in turning legislatures. Ed Gillespie ran a PAC that was just for state legislative races that raised a ton of money. And slowly they turned state legislatures around the country. And these are also the wellspring of future candidates. Right. So, um, Do you think, I, like, I think people was, like Tom Steyer can, can counter the Koch brothers? Well, I, I think that um, Democratic oligarchs have been less effective than Republican oligarchs. Why do you think? Because they get into um, – I don't want to call them vanity projects because I don't think saving the planet from climate change is a vanity project. But, you know, running ads about climate change around the country instead of investing the – billion dollars you have to spend in uh, candidates who can get elected and actually impact on policy, starting with state legislative candidates, is not, to me, a a good strategy. So, you know, I think Democrats generally have been focused top-down, Congress, Senate, President, and uh, the smart strategy is to focus from the bottom up. We've talked about this before, but just for the benefit of our listeners, David, you know, a big criticism of President Obama, of course, throughout his presidency is that he didn't reach across the aisle enough. And I know that you and you have said, well, he, the Republicans yeah. made that impossible. Well, I do. I really believe that. Listen, I know him obviously very well. I watched him in the Illinois legislature where he was famous for building bipartisan coalitions and where he, you know, had a, a weekly poker game with uh, with Republican legislators and, um, you know, so much so that there were Republican legislators who who, who literally endorsed him, endorsed him for president. Uh, so uh, he went to and, – and when he was in his brief time in the Senate, he worked with Dick Lugar. He worked with Tom Coburn. He worked with uh, – on, on a variety uh, of issues. I think he thought he could do that as president. It's very, very clear and it's codified that Mitch McConnell came to the conclusion that uh, since Obama ran on a platform of getting past this partisan divide and gridlock, that if they did cooperate, that it would be seen as an affirmation of Obama uh, and McConnell – uh, what's wrong with an affirmation of getting past the bipartisan divide? Well, the, it, what's wrong with it is if your goal is to win back Republican seats, which is the first, I think, obligation that McConnell feels, that you have a better chance if uh, if you're in the resistance, particularly at a time when you know that you're going to have some really tough votes to pull the country out of the economic crisis. So his thing was, you got, a de- you got all these Democrats, you solve these problems, and we'll run against you on them. And there was a policy of non-engagement that just fed on itself, because once, if you're the president of the United States and the Republicans say, we're not going to cooperate with you, you need to try and solve problems and you're going to work with your own people. And it just, McConnell successfully maneuvered Obama into becoming a more partisan figure out of necessity. And it just spiraled over time. You've witnessed 
the Trump administration systematically dismantle many of the accomplishments of the Obama era, you know, whether it's the Paris uh, Climate Agreement or DACA, Obamacare. And I'm curious what that feels like. You know, it must be devastating for you and for President Obama to watch this going on. Let me say a couple of things. One is um, actually um, we don't know what the status of DACA is. We don't – right? As we sit here today, DACA is not dismantled. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is not dismantled, although there's another attempt to do that this week. Um, the, there's we, we rumblings have ta- we about have taken, the Paris we, climate change. We have to, yes, and 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 there are things that the President Obama did relative to encouraging renewable energy and other regulations that have really moved us forward on climate change in ways that can't be uh, reversed. So. Um, I think he's moved the goalposts on all of these issues in ways that we're never going to go back to where we were. Uh, that's number one. Uh, and I think that's lost in all of this. Secondly, I don't think of it in terms of Obama's legacy. You know, on this health care issue, I, I, because of Lauren's situation and because I was almost bankrupted trying to keep her alive because I couldn't get health care that would cover her medications and because I bump into people all the time on the street who've been helped by the Affordable Care Act who tell me their lives were saved by it. That's what I care about. I really honestly don't. I don't care about Obama's legacy. I think his legacy is going to be strong and good. Uh, I'm proud of him. Um, but I don't even think he thinks in those terms. You know, I think about these DACA kids who are in complete uh, – uh, in a complete state of confusion now about what their future holds, who've never known another country, who are assets to this country. I think about these kids and adults, uh, not just kids who who have health care because of the Affordable Care Act. I worry about my grandchildren. You know, I was on a show um, once uh, when uh, the President Obama was speaking about climate change and someone asked me, well, why is he talking about climate change? It's only number six in the Wall Street Journal NBC poll. And that was after my first grandchild was born. And I'm thinking, I don't want to tell my grandchild if she's alive at the end of this century, and she will be, God willing, that I'm sorry the planet's degraded, but the Wall Street Journal NBC poll just wasn't good enough for us to do anything about it. So this isn't about Obama's legacy. It's about people and about the future of the world and the future of our country. You know, these are the things that concern me. Withdrawing the president as we speak today, the president has talked about withdrawing from the Iran nuclear agreement. I want to know what short of a catastrophic war uh, is his plan to uh, deal with that threat. President Obama got 97 percent of the nuclear material removed from the country, which delayed the production of a bomb. Uh, if they're now full speed ahead, what's their what's the plan? And how does it end? And because what does what it mean for America? Is another nuclear crisis, right? Well, we like to have them in every region. Right? <laughs> so, um, so you know, Katie, I, I mean, I mean, I don't. I hope it doesn't sound disingenuous. I actually didn't work for Barack Obama simply because I love Barack Obama, and I do. I worked for him because I thought that he could be an instrument for creating a better world, and. 
So that's um, really the spirit uh, in which I asked the question, though, really not about his legacy, but about the people who were helped by some of these yes. policies well, and worry, the fact that they're being reversed. I worry about them, but I go back to my first point, which is these battles are being fought, but they haven't been decided. And, uh, you know, the American people have some say on this, which is why the Affordable Care Act was so much harder to dismantle than the Republicans thought. Uh, the Republicans in Congress. Um, Speaking of which, do you think the we... majority, a huge number of Americans believe these DACA kids should be uh, allowed to stay and should have a legal status? Uh, you know, we are a democracy, and at the end of the day, people do have their say, and I'm heartened by that. Okay, I just want to mention a few other issues because I know we need to wrap. Graham Cassidy, do you think that it's going to pass? This is the health care bill, the latest version of the Republican health care exactly. bill. Exactly. And, and the one big difference between this and the last one, aside, setting aside the policy for a second, is that Lindsey Graham's name is on it. And when you're trying to get John McCain's vote, when that's the deciding vote, potentially, that's a pretty powerful tool. Well, they apparently lost a vote. In, Lindsey Graham's name on it may not make Rand Paul feel better about the Although Rand bill. Paul said he was against it last time and ultimately he could was flip. for it. But look, the same deficiencies that existed in the last bill exist in this bill. It, it, it uh, would... Uh, jeopardize a lot of the protections of the Affordable Care Act, including for people with pre-existing conditions. It would cut Medicaid in a dramatic way, and uh, it would mean no insurance for tens of millions of Americans who have it now because of the Affordable Care Act. It has the same feature of uh, Appealing funding for Planned Parenthood, which is one of the reasons that Collins and Murkowski opposed it. So um, it's hard to see how those who opposed the bill before would oppose it again. But the other feature of it would also make it difficult to pass through the House because it basically takes Affordable Care Act money from the states that have implemented the Medicaid expansion, large states like New York and California. Blue states. Blue states. And it reapportions it to states that didn't expand uh, Medicaid. That means that every Republican in California, every Republican in New York is going to have to cast a vote. That is manifestly bad for their states. So I think there's a long way to go between now and the president signing a bill that he may not have any idea uh, what it contains. So a lot of chatter about the role of tech companies and politics and, and in our life, in our lives generally. Um, what do you think about Facebook and Google and the potential that Washington's going to impose new regulations and the role that they mm. played in the 2016 election? Yeah. Look, I think one of the great challenges for us is that technology is churning so quickly that we can't get our arms around its impact and its ans its unintended consequences. Facebook is a great uh, and important tool to help people communicate with each other, connect people to the world, um, but it obviously can be gamed, and it was gamed quite apparently by the Russians. And now I think some thought has to be given to what do we do about that? How do we deal with it? I don't have the answers, but I think Facebook and Google and the whole tech community can't walk away from the ramifications of their technology. They have to be part of finding a solution. I, By the way, you know, one of the things that I'm obsessed about is uh, automation. Uh, tech companies have come out to try and get ahead of that by saying, well, we need – uh, guaranteed basic income. 
But we also need jobs. You know, I mean, I, I think people need uh, Joe Biden said this the other day. He just came out against guaranteed basic income, right. didn't he? Yeah. Now, I think the, the truth is somewhere in between in that we need people to have good, meaningful jobs. We need those jobs to pay well. And where there is uh, where there are gaps, I think something like guaranteed basic income, supplemental income is valuable. But look, we define ourselves by what we are and what we do. And I think to say you're on the couch now, but we'll give you a a check. That's not, and and and, the, and you know. So they need to be part of the strategy for solving these problems. And uh, you know, I hope it's done in a way that that retains the freedom that has made the internet such a valuable uh, addition to our world. But we need to think responsibly about how we deal with the manifestations or the ramifications of all this. So. Um you started an institute of politics at your beloved University of Chicago um, after you worked for the president's reelection campaign. Are you enjoying this work? I, listen, um, when I finished the 2012 campaign, I knew it was my last campaign. I knew it was my last campaign because, A, I would never do anything comparable and I would never have a client as good as as the one I had. Um, and B, you know, you get a, to a point in life, every one of these campaigns takes something out of you and, and, and takes something away from your family, as I mentioned before. So I knew I couldn't do that. But every day I walked into that campaign headquarters, I was inspired by these young people who were there f- 24-7, devoting themselves, some with no pay, not just because they liked Barack Obama, but as we said before, because they saw this as a vehicle to make the the world a better place. And uh, I was inspired by them. So I wanted to be around young people and the Institute of Politics, where we uh, try and encourage young people to get into the public arena writ large, uh, including journalism, uh, to make an impact larger than themselves, is a is just a great way to do it. So I'm, you know, we've had over a thousand speakers uh, since um, uh, I don't think you've been there yet, have you? No, no. I've, well, I've been interviewed I mean, on we, your podcast. Uh, we, that's not good enough. <laughs> you need to come. And, and well, since my you husband's from come. Chicago, maybe yes, I will get back there. And, and my, my my in-laws live there part of the year. And is that an incentive to come or not? It come? is. Okay, I good. actually love my in-laws. Oh, good. I feel right. very, very lucky. Good. So, uh, but uh, we've we got, got wonderful fellows and uh, we've got... Uh, we run this robust internship program, and we've now had enough life that we can now see our students going into public service, going to NGOs, going into journalism. And to me, that's a great payoff, you know. So uh, I, I feel really, really blessed to be able uh, to do this. On your question about Harvard, and I'm also on the Harvard IOP board, and they were very generous in supporting us as we helped establish this. I assume this is about this yes. controversy Chelsea about Chelsea they got, Manning. They got into hot water by inviting Chelsea Manning and then Mike Morrell quit. And, we you should, know, I think universities across the country are grappling with this, well, I this co- question of free speech yes. versus, I'm not even going to call it political correctness, but sensitivity yeah. to the students. I or, will say that over the last five years, like I had Corey Lewandowski, uh, he was at our place uh, last year. He was invited there. Bob Costa from The Post was a fellow, and he invited Corey as a guest. Uh, Sean Spicer came into an event before the administration began, at which he said he would quit before he lied. Um, 
And well, he kind of got the timing right. <laughs> but would you have had Corey? Well, I mean, in fairness to Sean, who's a friend of mine, I, I just the worst job in America is being a spokesperson for Donald Trump because you just don't know whatever bridge you walk out on. You you know, and sometimes you're told to walk out on a bridge that you that you know is a bridge to nowhere. So, well, I uh, feel but, like at that bridge to nowhere, maybe you you should then you jump say exactly at, no, before, I, I hear before you. you're made I to hear do you. that. But but. Um, but would you have invited Chelsea Manning or Corey Lewandowski to be fellows? Well, that's at the, the issue. The, the issue. I think there was a that was, and that was what Morell objected to. Morell, I've talked to Morell, who's a friend of mine and has been been a fellow at my IOP, and he said, you know, his he felt they were conferring an honor on Chelsea Manning that it wasn't that she came because I had Edward Snowden beamed in from Moscow at, at my IOP, and uh, so you know, um, I, I just think that was the nuance that they they probably would reconsider if they had to do it again. But listen, I don't want to yield to the notion that we're not going to bring speakers to the IOP who some or somebody of students or others are, might find objectionable. You know, Van Jones, there was a protest when Lewandowski came to the IOP, 150 students outside, which I also honor because protest is part of democracy. But he wasn't a fellow at your No, but, but I will say this, um, and I've told this to the students, um, and Van Jones summed it up best. He came a week after these kids, uh, Lewandowski did, and he said, listen, we owe to you th- to be safe from physical harm. We don't owe it to you to be safe from ideas you don't like or or people you don't like. He said, you, my mission, our mission is to make you strong, not safe. And the way you become strong is to confront these things through the power of your ideas. And he said, and this is the gym. This is the universities where you become strong. I thoroughly embrace what Van said, and that's the philosophy of the Institute of Politics, and I think it should be of every institute. But what of about people who are so so repugnant, like Milos? What's the guy's? Yeah. Um, well, I, I wouldn't. Yiannopoulos. Yes, yeah. I think you have to use judgment, right? I mean, I mean, the, so, the, the, the thing, the you know, Corey Lewandowski. Decides? Corey Lewandowski. There were a hundred kids in the room when he came. I think they would all tell you it was really enlightening. Uh, because they got insights into Donald Trump and they got a chance to ask Lewandowski questions that were frankly very challenging. Uh, but he, he had, there was value, you know, it was like there was nutritional value. Right. Uh, but then to sometimes it. it's just pure and simple hate speech. That's right. Yeah. And, now, and that, then that, how do that, you that do is that? true. And I think you have to use your judgment as to uh, where the line is. And that, you know, the problem is, where people want to draw the right. line because who everyone who's asso- every, anyone slope. who's associated with Donald Trump or the Republican Party certainly Donald Trump you you can't say we're not going to hear from them we're not going to hear from officials of the government we're not going to hear from people who are in the campaign because we think Donald Trump is a white supremacist i mean i just don't buy no, that no i i agree with that but then i do think there are certain cases where it is just so repugnant yes, I agree. that they should not be provided a platform. I, I, uh, I agree that there is a line, and uh, and I think that sensible people should be able to agree on what that line is. Well, gosh, we've covered just about everything. You've been so generous to hang well, out I'm with gonna, us so long. I plan long. to live a while longer, so I want to come back and do the next <laughs> chapter of my life sometime in the You're future. You're welcome anytime. Well, you know, is there something that you want to do? Or are you happy working at the, you know, running the IOP and being with I, your family? I, I do, and I'm a senior commentator at CNN. And then my 
podcast will be on once a month on CNN, The Axe Files, as a TV oh, show. Oh, they're doing that as a TV, as a TV show once show. a month now. Yes. Uh, we've I know had they did McC- those we had McCain. Shows. Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown. Saw, we've yeah. had uh, John Lewis. I'm uh, going to do Jim Baker. So CNN actually is a big commitment of mine. And then um, the podcast itself and speaking and writing and my family. That's a full life. I'm very, very happy. I feel so lucky to have the life that I have. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, well satisfied with what I'm doing. Well, hopefully you'll keep doing it for a long time. Thank you. David Axelrod. Thank you. And and to you guys. Thanks, David. So much fun to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.